Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to this conversation with John Pullinger, Chair of the Electoral Commission. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government. We've looking forward to this one, a lot to talk about. Before we kick off, uh, just a few housekeeping arrangements. We're going to be tweeting live from IFG events using the hashtag IFG elections. Please do tweet and follow us. Please do send in your questions for John as early as you like, and that can mean right now. In fact, I've got a few good ones already, and uh, thank you very much for those. And if you want to say who you are, even just first name and where you're uh, watching us from, that really helps, I can tell you. You can post your questions on the panel on the right of your screen, and we're going to have a sound and video recording of this up on our website within 24 hours. With that, let me give you a brief introduction to the very, very um, interesting, many-sided career of John Pullinger. He began his his term as chair of the Electoral Commission earlier this year, in May. Until 2019, he was the UK's national statistician and chief executive of the UK Statistics Authority. I'm going to come to a few questions on that right at at the end. I I think people would um, be very interested in that. He's also served as president of the Royal Statistical Society, chair of the United Nations Statistical Commission, trustee of the Nuffield Foundation, and president of the International Association for Official Statistics. He also spent 10 years between 2004 and 2014 as librarian of the House of Commons. John, very warm welcome. It's lovely to be here. Great. Well, I thought we might kick off by talking about the elections bill. Um, which came out of the government's manifesto and is now making its way through the Commons. It's um, it's due to have its report stage and third reading dates not announced yet. Perhaps you could just tell us what the aims of this bill are. This is the government's bill, I should say. It's not yours, but um, as, as someone who's been looking at it very closely, you could perhaps take our audience into that. Well, as you've said, this makes good on promises the government made in its manifesto um, when it was elected. And I think there's four elements that I would highlight. I mean, the first is a proposal for voters to show ID when they come to vote, which makes good on concerns that the government's had about fraud and risks of fraud in elections. Um, it includes provisions for overseas voters to be able to, to vote um, and removes a cut-off after 15 years that have been in place before. Um, it brings election law up to date to some extent with the digital world, with requirements around digital campaigning. And also it's got provisions relating to um, intimidation of candidates. Um, there are a range of other other provisions, some technical provisions, but also some quite important ones. But they're the four I'd start off with highlighting. It's really helpful. Let's just look at this one of the voter ID. How much of a problem was it? I mean, you you hear a lot of anecdotal worries about fraud at the time of elections, though also a sense that Britain is basically uh, an honest country where elections are not, um, uh, in the main, um, ambushed by that kind of behaviour. What's your sense of the problem that this is trying to solve? Well, the first thing to say is, I mean, all of our research shows that people across the country have very high confidence in elections in, in Britain. So take that as a baseline. But... For some time now, international observers have observed a risk in the British system because there is no need to show idea when you come to vote. So that's a concern which has been outstanding. It's also something that public, when asked, um, often say they are worried about, the security of, of the vote. 
And I think um, examples such as the 2014 elections for Mayor of Tower Hamlets, mm. where Lord Pickles did a quite a, a, a strong review afterwards, yeah, suggest something needs to be even. done. Yes. Blistering yes. even, yes. And yes. I, I think we should be yes. seriously concerned about yes. these questions. So that's the backdrop for these provisions coming. Yes, yeah, so and I my 18-year-old daughter going to vote for the, the first time, said, what do you mean I don't have to show ID? Mm. It seems ex- extraordinary to her. All right, so there was that risk, if you like, more mm. than an active problem. How much does this bill do something about voter ID? Well, it will require it. It yeah. will require it straightforwardly. Um, but the things around that, if you want to make sure it is effective, yeah. I think need to be taken on board at the same time. Which is, uh, what, what kind of thing? Well, many commentators have said those people who currently do not have voter ID mm. risk disenfranchisement. Mm. And our research shows there are many millions of those. Um, so the bill needs to address the question of how can we be confident that those people who currently do not have a form of photo ID can actually get it and will be able to get it. Yes. Um, and uh, the idea of a free voter ID card, um, which is what's been used in Northern Ireland for some time mm. now, mm. would be the kind of thing that needs to come forward if this bill is to deal with the concerns about security of the vote, but also make sure that the risk of people losing, out, losing their vote yes. is yes. mitigated. Yes. Um, all right, so let's go on to the digital component then and people voting digitally. What problems does that present? Well, we produced some um, research earlier this year on modernising voting and I think the short point to say is there's not a massive demand for us to move to digital voting. Mm. But I think there are many opportunities, opportunities to make the electoral system more digital. So the bill deals with one aspect of it, which is digital campaigning. So that if we see some election literature online, we can click through and find out where it's come from. And I think that is a very valuable um, safeguard. And, and then do what? Well, then know where it's come from so that someone cannot just suddenly come up and produce election literature claiming to be someone, but actually be someone else. So this has already been introduced in Scotland um, and has been working well. And we're learning the lessons from their experience to make sure mm. when we adopt it across the rest of the UK, we can really mm. do it properly and actually answer the questions that people have. Mm. I'm going to come on to some uh, points about these very, very interesting questions about, about devolution and how parts of the UK have got different rules in a moment, because I, I, I think that's very interesting. What about um, regulating political finances? Well, in the bill or more in the, generally? In the, in the bill and generally. Yeah. So in the bill, it's, it's, it's modest, as we were discussing before this. Or arcane, uh, I think. It's not it necessarily is. modest, but yes. it's technical. So yes. it deals with questions of notion expenditure and non-party this campaign, campaign finance. which I yeah. can go into more generally. But mm. on a broader level, the Electoral Commission's role is to regulate political finance. Yes. So we register parties if they yes. cover a series of statutory tests. And then when they are operating we make public where they're getting their money from. Mm. And I think that aspect of transparency is absolutely critical to making democracy work and has been a concern that um, if you don't know where the money's coming from, mm. how can you be sure who's calling the shots? Is that, to ask a very basic question, is that getting harder? I mean, it's, it's harder, things are getting... Um, it, it, it can be harder to find out where things are going when there is such... Um, it can be such a digital trail or lack of one behind movements of money, um, who's backing whom, so on? Well, we will publish all of the information about yeah. who the donor is. But questions of who's behind the donor and how you can make sense of, sense of that become 
potentially more challenging. So um, the bill is seeking to make sure that we are really clear about outlawing foreign donations. Mm. But that becomes in a digital world where geography is a bit harder to track. Yeah. You've got to be really careful and clear about exactly what you are covering in the in the um, transparency reports and what you're not. So let's just go into this a little bit because it's um, it's fascinating. As, as you said, it can be very hard to work out. So you're, you're setting out to, to uh, bar international donations. Here comes a, a, a donation. It appears to be an English or oh, British-based, UK-based person. But how would you how would you know? What do you? How intrusive do you have to be on the source of, of donations? Well, at the moment, the law requires us to collect the donations from the party, yeah. publish them, and people can ask questions. Um, one thing we would like to see, but we haven't yet got the ability to do, is require parties to do what's known as enhanced due diligence, effectively yep. what's in money laundering legislation, where you kind of can track back and follow that digital breadcrumb trail all the way back to where the money's come from. Because you're right, it is getting harder. But the great strength of our legislation at the moment is we do have these public registers. They do enable those questions to be asked. And as we see from public debate, they are asked and, mm. and debated. Mm. And people can draw their own conclusions from that. Yeah. No, very fair point. What about the independence of the Electoral Commission itself? Well, as you said, I said I was appointed in May and my um, appointment process was very strongly focused on my independence and my desire to safeguard the independence of the Electoral Commission and certainly in my public hearing and the debate on the floor of the House of Commons on mm. my appointment. That was a kind of strong um, line of questioning from, from all parties. So I think we are very fortunate in having an Electoral Commission that does have this very clear mm. place in law. But it takes you into some controversial places, this, this, this point of this independent vantage point. You've submitted a report on what's called Flatgate, the business of the Prime Minister's flat, haven't you? What is the status of that? You well, submitted it to the government. Yeah, that is an ongoing investigation, so um, I can't really comment on the investigation, but it is an investigation into the Conservative Party, so we are regulating parties here. Um, and part of the process of the investigation is to give um, the, the, the party investigated the chance to comment on our findings and have input. So we're in that process. Now, of course, once we've concluded it, we will publish our findings and hopefully that will be as soon as possible. But I can't really comment mm. beyond that now. No, I wasn't expecting more at exactly this point, but thank you for that. Let's go to this point of devolution that we were, uh, you were just mentioning before, because it's very interesting. We now have, perhaps more than people realise, um, distinct differences in the way that um, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland carry out um, at least some of their electoral procedures, don't we? Can you, can you just take us through? How, how different have we got? The coronavirus, for a lot of people, was the first time they realised, particularly in England, mm. how much devolution there was and mm. how much... Um, uh, power, autonomy, uh, the uh, devolved parts of the country had to run their own affairs. So where have we got to in electoral law? Well, the Electoral Commission is a UK-wide body yep. and we are, since 1st of April this year, um, formally accountable and financed by the Scottish and Welsh parliaments as well as the UK parliament. So to that extent, we're in new territory. 
But for some time now, there have been elements of electoral law that the Scottish and Welsh parliaments um, have had authority over. And I shouldn't forget Northern Ireland, of course. So whilst that's not devolved, there are distinct features of electoral um, legislation in Northern Ireland reflecting the particular sets of challenges you've got to, to run elections there. But for Scotland and Wales, um, we are accountable to the Welsh Parliament and the Scottish Parliament, and they are quite active in pursuing their own agendas around elections. So, for example, the franchise has now been extended in both Scotland and Wales to 16- and 17-year-olds. We've had the chance to see how that worked, and as a commission, we support that. Mm. Uh, The Welsh... So support what? The the laboratory or the extension? Support the extension. Extension. So we have been working with them and with schools, for example, in those countries to help um, 16- and 17-year-olds exercise their vote Mm. properly to understand what it means and be ready when their time has come, as it has recently, to um, This is fascinating. Just pause on this for a second, because people, I think, are very interested in England. I I don't mean to be shutting out our Welsh and Scottish and Northern Ireland uh, uh, viewers from this at all. Um, But the the sense, as I said, of of the different parts of the UK acting as a laboratory, and you regard Mm. this as a a successful experiment. It it does give these laboratory conditions, certainly. So when we were talking about digital campaigning earlier, we have the fact that the Scottish Parliament has already enacted this to learn from as we think about legislating in England. And the legislation for um, the UK Parliament has very actively taken on board what has happened in Scotland. Mm -hmm. We now have the chance to see what has happened when 16 and 17-year-olds have the vote, Mm. which will enable a a richer debate, Mm, I'm sure, mm. at the UK-wide level. No, I can absolutely see that. And and what have you learned from that and about trying to teach 16 and 17-year-olds about the business of voting in a democracy? Well, I think the first thing is there's no right answer to any of these electoral questions. Mm. So I think each jurisdiction needs to think about what is right for them. So um, the key thing is we now have that factual base and the factual base is 16 and 17 year olds did vote successfully in Mm. Scotland and Wales and we can now find out what their opinions were about that and what they think about it and that can inform how that debate carries forward for the UK as a whole. Mm. And if there were going to be a a second Scottish independence referendum at any point Mm. what would your role be in that? It would be the same as it was for the referendum in 2014 that the Electoral Commission um, in 2014, was involved in testing alternative questions, proposing a question for the relevant parliament to consider, to register campaigners um, and to make sure we um, collected information from them um, and then to to look at the the process afterwards and evaluate and see how successful it was. Mm. Okay. I said right at the beginning, before we go to questions, and I've got a a good stack now, um, and thank you very much for for sending them in. I wanted to ask you a few things about um, statistics and Mm -hmm. the way that the government and the public have been using them during coronavirus, um, because suddenly they have become the substance of public conversation, and Mm -hmm. people quoting them at each other, and uh, it's rare to open the the digital version of the papers any day and not see lots and lots of charts Mm -hmm. about coronavirus. What, What have you taken from this? I think the first thing is 
when statistics are relevant to them, people are interested in them. And as you say, we are all talking about the numbers, we're all using the numbers, and we're all thinking about what those numbers mean for the decisions we're making in our lives. So um, that, I think, is a very valuable lesson for statisticians, that the key thing is to be producing things that people want. And, and that people do want these and things. And people do yeah. want, yes. And I've um, um, been particularly impressed with what my successor has done with the, the weekly um, figures we get on the spread of the virus in the community. Yeah. So we can understand now how it's shifted down from secondary schools into primary schools. We can so get some a of this is news to... that, that there's more detail available and more detail on parts of the country compared to years ago. Yes. Yeah, so when I started out, the thing that was scarce was data. Right. So you had to collect data very carefully and the best you could really hope for was to create an average. Now we can draw data together from all kinds of places and really put together a rich picture of what's happening in different parts of the country, in different age groups, understand some of the numbers around the numbers so that we can really have something valuable for us mm. when we're making decisions. And that's a fundamental shift. Mm. And has it given you any surprises looking back? You think, oh, gosh, I, you know, I wish I'd known this back then about some aspect of the UK. Uh, Yes, and I think those are the things, throughout my career, those are the things that have really made it worthwhile. Mm. I mean, I'll give you one example. It's, it, it's a little while ago now. It was when I was working on the census. Mm. And the census results will be coming out in the next few months, but they give you the real fine-grained data. Mm. And the one that really just hit me was the extent to which old coal mining towns were still had the legacy of people, particularly women, caring for people who used to work in the mines. Mm. And it was only that granularity of data that enabled you to see that, that it was small towns in South Wales and County Durham that were bearing this enormous weight that no one knew about. But the mm. statistics brought that out and enabled a much richer discussion in, in political circles about, so what are we going to do about it? Mm. Thank you for that. We might come back to uh, some of those points, even some of the more co controversial ones about what, what is collected and not. But I wanted to start taking in some of the questions because there's some excellent questions. Um, let, me, let me start with one from Tom Brake, um, who says, in Northern Ireland, after the introduction of photographic voter ID, turnout fell in subsequent elections. How much do you expect turnout to drop here after the introduction of photographic voter ID? And when would you expect it to recover? So this is asking for very precise uh, predictions, but the point being um, that this did appear, hmm. going back to the laboratory, to be a, a, a bar to people turning up to vote, which is not what anyone wants. I think we need to watch that very carefully and, and make sure it, it doesn't happen. And we do have the experience of Northern Ireland to, to go on. Looking at turnout is quite tricky between elections because there's all kinds of things that are affecting it. But we would certainly want to be measuring very carefully what is happening in different community groups. So in Northern Ireland now we do have good data about what ID people are using when they come to vote. And just mm -hmm. over half will turn up with their driving licence, another quarter with their passport. Mm -hmm. But also we've now got um, a significant number who are using the free voter ID card mm -hmm. that um, is available to them. So I think we can really internalise the lessons we had from Northern Ireland and make sure that um, people are not, um, or people are up to speed from the first time this happens, mm. rather than us having to go through a trough. Um, but it, I think it, it is a real and fair worry. Mm. OK, uh, th thank you for that. You take one from Christine in Merseyside. Um, 
and she asks, is the threat from uh, the government to remove the prosecutorial powers from the Electoral Commission real or just another sabre-rattling media headline? Okay. Well, it is a real provision in the bill. Um, And to be honest, I'm quite open-minded about the powers the Electoral Commission has, but Parliament has voted powers um, to tackle um, uh, offences relating to elections. And if it's not going to be the Electoral Commission, the key thing is to make sure it is picked up by someone else, in this case, the police. So that is what I've been saying to, to parliamentarians. If, if this power is to be removed from one body, let's be confident that another body is ready to pick it up. And, of course, we are working with the government and the police to make sure that happens. But it is a real provision in the bill that will remove a real power that currently mm. exists. OK, thank you for that. I've got one from George in London who says, if there is a, a second Scottish independence referendum, what role, if any, will the Electoral Commission have in drafting or agreeing the question? Well, as I said in uh, the, the earlier piece, we'll have the same role we did last time. And last time we did um, test questions and we did recommend those questions um, to parliamentarians to, to decide upon. And that's what I would expect would happen again if that situation um, comes down the track. So what does that mean that on the question? It means yes. It means yes, yes. Thank you. Um, Thank you for that. Okay, one from Maureen in Essex, saying, today there are 337 registered political parties, excluding Northern Ireland. What sort of enhanced due diligence do you think it is possible for them to do of their donors? Should they be able to check with HMRC? Should they they get public funds to help with the extra work? And so this is about the responsibility Mm -hmm. on parties themselves to know who their donors Mm -hmm. really are. And an interesting... I think it's, it, it's helpful, I, I hope, for the wider audience to hear you quote the number. And we do have a very large number of political parties in, in the UK. And many of them are operated by volunteers on a very part-time basis. And I think we need to be very careful about the amount of um, bureaucracy that we put in, in, in the way of, of organisations in that situation. And I think we want to be in the business of encouraging people to get into politics rather than putting rules in the way. So if we did have a regime like that, it should bite on those who are likely to be dealing with significant-sized donations um, where there is a concern. And I think you can um, differentiate political parties quite easily in the way you uh, organise a a regulatory regime that's that's based around the risks. So if we were to bring in something like that, I think it would want to bite on those parties where there is a a substantial fundraising activity um, and where there are the resources in place to to do that. But I think in these situations, we really should mainly be appealing to the self-interest of the parties because I think it is important for them in terms of their own credibility to demonstrate the source of their own funding and to be able to answer those questions themselves so Mm. they can be clear with their own members that they are Mm. doing things properly and according according to the law. Thanks for that. Okay, there's one from Chris McCone saying, how will the provisions on digital campaigning be enforced? Will the Electoral Commission be able to trace someone who puts out a digital advert without an imprint? Um, we should be able to. I mean, this is 
where I think we, we need to be following through the lessons from the, the Scottish example. But we should be able to follow that in the same way we follow other things. But as we've said earlier, in the digital world, we, we need to learn as we're going along about exactly what is, what is happening. But the short answer um, is yes, we think we can do this. Um, and when we go through the provisions implementing the digital imprints regime, we will be doing so with this in mind. Mm. OK, thank you for that. Interesting, well, there's a lot on party funding and, and campaigns. Let me, let's just drill down into this a little bit. One from Nick Burton saying the limits for third-party local election campaigns were set at £50 plus half a penny per elector in 2020. It's grossly inadequate, will not fund a single leaflet drop, while local councillors have greatly increased powers. What does the Commission think should be done about this? I think some of these rules that you kind of have to have because of the way the law works are... um, quite tricky individually to justify and you kind of what you say is of course true Um, so we're navigating an art of the possible and art of the practical here and tweaking it to make sure it is as practical and sensible as possible so I think my best answer to you there is we're always listening and learning and trying to think so what are the limits we can put on things how are they working Uh, how do they bite in practice and what people are actually trying to do Um, and we're in a shifting landscape. I mean, many of the campaigns that are predominantly done using um, social media or entirely online mm. have effectively no cost. You can do it do it very straightforwardly. So it's it's uh, as you've in- indicated earlier, Bronwyn, the digital world is a is quite a tricky one to navigate. And I think part of this is about the law keeping up, but part of it is is following common sense and thinking. So, what are real people doing in practice? What will people expect the commission to be doing? And making sure that we are um, transparent and throwing a light on what is actually happening in the world of campaigning, so that people can form their own own views on whether they think it's good enough. Thank you for that. I'm just going to bring in another one, again, on party funding, um, because there is really mm. quite a cluster here, as I said, but you may feel that you've covered it. Um, and this person, no name, is saying, as a previous compliance officer for a political party, I know how stretched party funding is, meaning it is hard to afford the right level of quality resource that is required to carry out existing levels of checking and due diligence. How can parties afford to carry out further forensic checks? Yeah, I think that's that is a a real question and a real concern. I mean, the um, commission has just completed a significant consultation on what we're calling our regulatory support strategy, and that's about how we support compliance officers and support parties more generally to be compliant with the law so that you can all get it right first time rather than risk being caught out after the event with an investigation. And I think that's a real worry, not just for compliance officers, but I think also for volunteers who are trying to keep receipts and and organise things, often in their own kitchens in their own spare time. Um, And they don't want to fall foul of the law. They do want to get it right, but it is very complicated and very arcane. And the last thing you want is me sitting here talking about creating even more rules. So the regulatory support strategy is about what we can do as a commission to provide guidance, provide clarity, provide help to you and your parties who themselves will be producing guidance for you so that that burden is minimised. But I can't say we can wish it away because the law is, is 
has been passed by parliaments. Our job is to uphold that law, mm. and that law is about giving transparency to where money is coming from. But what I hope we can be is both a robust regulator, but also a courteous and an understanding regulator who gets it, the kinds of jobs that you've got to do and the breadth of the um, uh, information that you've got to collate mm. and gather for us. All right, let me bring in a pair of questions which are both uh, worried about the threat as they see it to the um, Electoral Commission's independence uh, from this bill in particular. One from Andrew Wyatt who says, does the intention to allow the government to impose a strategy and policy on the commission imply a shift towards being more, of the commission towards being more like an executive um, non-departmental public, public body in the jargon and less of a parliamentary uh, body? And a second one from Tom Brake um, there are lots of other questions, but he's, he's put a couple of very good ones today, saying the bill will also allow the government to introduce a strategy and policy for the commission, which many believe threatens the independence of the commission. Do you agree? The strategy and policy statement on the face of the bill is inconsistent with having an independent electoral commission overseeing yes. elections yes. and regulating political finance. So yeah. the answer to that question is yes. And what are you going to do about it? Then? Well, it's with Parliament to do something about it. I mm. can just make the observation that a statement that is intending to guide the work of an independent body, body mm. is inconsistent with it being an independent body. And um, I think it's now for parliamentarians to consider that. And there has been debate in the Commons. As you've said, mm-hmm. the next stage is report and third reading in the Commons, and there'll be a debate in, in the Lords. And the question is what Parliament is going to do about it rather mm. than what I'm going to do about it. It is absolutely all roads come back to Parliament on this, but are are you going to um, argue more loudly for uh, the threat uh, against the threat to the independence of the Commission? Well, as I said at the outset, I've been hired to be an independent chair of the Commission, and that's what I will seek to be. Uh, If the bill is passed in its current form, it will be harder to demonstrate independence and for the public to be confident of independence because there will be a provision on the face of the the law that says the government is producing statement which the Commission is required to have regard to when carrying out its functions. I see what you're saying, but it's an interesting point, isn't it? As As the chair of an independent body... Um, is it not appropriate to stand up and say, look, I see this as a threat to the ind- independence of this body, if you do? I think I've just said that yeah. very clearly to the audience here and will happily say it to others. All right. Let's switch to a different um, subject. One from Professor Stephen John Newton. And he asks, when, if ever, do you think we will reform the system to devolve and empower uh, more regional and local, local authorities? I started my career very long time ago now looking at um, powers for local authorities and financing of, of local authorities and I think this is a topic that will ebb and thro- flow over the generations and uh, the landscape now is very different to the early 80s with mayors in many places, with unitary authorities and mixed kinds of authorities um, I would hesitate, I'm afraid, to predict where we're going to go with that one other than that it will continue to ebb and flow. Mm. Okay, let's, let's leave that one there. Um, then I've got um, um, some interesting ones on incentives for voting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Really, a couple of them. Robert Garthland says, uh, are there any initiatives underway to incentivize voting or make it easier to do so? The health of a democracy relies on citizens participating mm-hmm. in electing their leaders. And one from John um, saying, at the local level, voter turnout is often very low, less than 20%, and at the national, um, about 50%, especially in by-elections. Added to that, postal voting is seen as insecure. That's a separate mm. question. What do you see as the reforms needed to address these concerns about, about turnout? I think I'll break it down into two parts. I mean, the first one is incentives to registering to vote, because that's the prerequisite before you get get to, to voting. And I think to make that process as inclusive as possible is the key, really. And I mm. think for the Commission, um, through a whole range of partners, to work with different community organisations, different interest groups, to really um, get them to understand how important it is for them to have a voice to be registered to vote. So I see there is an opportunity there that is taken, I think, quite actively in some parts of the country. Um, but how can we as a commission spread best, best practice on that? Mm-hmm. Then when it comes to voting itself, we will have campaigns um, and we have campaigns at the times of elections as well as at the times of, mm. of um, canvassing for, for registration to give people um, a feeling that this is an opportunity for them to express their their views and have a voice but we're part of a much wider ecosystem of politics here and Mm. I think um, it's not just about voters it's about voters having people they want to vote for Mm. um, and um, uh, having issues that they want that they care enough about that they want to exercise their Mm. vote and if you look at turnout in UK elections it has gone up and down and often that has been associated with the issues that um, people feel there are people who are standing for a particular mm. thing that they want to happen um, and they believe if they vote for that person this will happen, well, that's the incentive. Mm. So I think mm. the critical thing is is not just about saying this is your vote, have it, but it's really nurturing politics, encouraging more people to stand for election, encouraging um, people to think about how their um, how their voice can be heard and how parties are going to take on those voices to make sure that um, there is an impact. So as an example, I was reading the report from the IPPR that's come out mm-hmm. over the, the weekend and looking at a kind of gradient of trust in Westminster politics and how there is a gradient that appears to decline the further away you get from Westminster. Mm. Well, that's interesting and it plays into a lot of the debate that's happening in Parliament. How can parliamentarians speaking in Westminster really ensure the voice of those who live significantly a long way from Westminster really are heard? So I think we're having that discussion and I think it's a very healthy part of the discussion, Mm. but I think there are two sides to it. It's incentivising voters, but also for the body politic to be thinking about how do we make sure we are giving voice to the concerns that our voters have really got. That's really interesting. You put it very well. I I just want to um, weave in a point from John Hoare, uh, who says, since 1945, the percentage of the vote gained by successive governments in general elections has slowly declined. Never more than 50%. It was as low as 35% in 2005 and 37% in 2015, he says. Um, do you have any concerns about this trend, which you've, you've partly you know, addressed there, but you've also said it goes up and down? Well, well, first it goes up and down, but on the specific point, I think I don't think I have concerns about it, but I think the fact we've got those numbers reflects 
that we've moved from a system which was, after the war, predominantly two parties to one which is more plural. And um, I think you can argue whether that's, that's good or bad or not. It's just different. And um, it's, it, it, it's a reflection that we do have several parties now that have a reasonable share of the vote and that mm. inevitably depresses the, the shares of the... Um, the mm. Labour and Conservative Party that have been in this game all the way through. Mm. Um, so a really interesting answer, which gives me a chance to bring in one from Neil, who says, general election deposits seem to have been fixed at £500 since 1985. Is it time these were increased to take account of inflation uh, and to deter candidates who seek cheap publicity? I think he's craving a reduction in the large number of parties that we have been discussing. Uh, well, I was... Thinking about that last week, and sort of watching the the, the count in the um, in the by election, and uh, again, I, I think the key thing is for any discussion of this to be properly informed, because there are unintended consequences of these things. If you do raise the limit, you are likely to reduce the number of candidates standing, and you could say, right, well, that's fine because these people have never got a chance of getting in in any any place. Um, but on the other hand, um, standing election does give the chance for people, particularly locally, to have a voice and have an opportunity mm. to to check out their, their support. I think there are um, arguments in each direction. And I think for this kind of thing, um, this is where parliamentary debate is, is the right way to, to resolve mm. it and to think, mm. is, is the time right or not? Um, and I don't think it's for the Electoral Commission to have a a view separated from the view of the body politic, mm. from voters and from elected representatives. Oh, thank you for that. So the, for the moment, the foreign amusement on our elections, uh, I remember the uh, Lord Buckethead becoming famous over Theresa May's um, election and, and some, a week of brief appearances on <laughs> American television. So, on. so for the moment, that goes on. All right, uh, let me ask you one from Nicholas Bowman. At what point would the Electoral Commission become involved if the government were directing levelling up uh, funds to conservative constituencies? Um, I I can't see a situation where that would be a matter for the Electoral Commission. We're here to oversee elections and to regulate political finance. We have very precise rules in in law set down and we will direct ourselves to to those. so, I mean, I'll reflect on it, but I, I, I can't immediately see how that would be likely to... Doesn't it come under, in some... Could it come under, in some sense, the discussion on campaign finance? In, 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 a, in a sense, it'd be use of, um, of uh, national funds for what he is arguing, obviously, could be party political ends. So we're looking at campaign finance around elections. Yeah. So there are limits on how much each each um, uh, party in, a, in an election can, can spend. So I'm still struggling to actually th- right. think, think, how, think, think it through. I'll think about it afterwards. If I come up with an answer, I'll, 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 I'll follow up. But I, uh, I, I, I can't see it at the moment, I'm afraid. Sorry, right. I'm not right. able to... No, no. Thank you. Another point we've half touched on, but perhaps not head on, Nigel Morgan's asking, what are your thoughts on reducing the voting age to 16? Well, it's another one where I think these questions of the franchise are not 
ones mm. that the Commission has traditionally mm. got, got involved in. We are collecting evidence on, as how it's gone. We have the example of Scotland and Wales to, to look at now, and that gives us the chance for a good debate um, more generally. And I think this is a place where having a good debate is, is a good thing, and we'll be able to hear the voices of those um, 16 and 17-year-olds who have voted alongside those who haven't, and then that, can, that can inform the discussion. Mm. Thank you. Interesting one, back on the voter ID, um, Paul Evans puts the point very directly, it seems to me, saying all regulation should aim to be proportionate to the issue, I'm going to say problem, it addresses, is the voter ID proposal proportionate, I guess by implication to the problem of, of, of voter fraud and so on, do the upsides outweigh the downsides? And we have discussed the downsides of potentially shutting people out, deterring them or actually barring them from voting. Well, I think I... I would characterise it as three conditions that need to be fulfilled for it to work, um, rather than thinking of it as proportionate in a kind of uh, single dimension. So the voter ID provisions are there to tackle a risk, a perception and a reality of um, fraud. They need... If, if they are to come into place, they need to be done in a way that does not disenfranchise people and mm. concerns that Tom Brake has, has um, referenced mm. in this discussion and others have referenced elsewhere. Is there quite a significant barrier there and we need to be confident that that barrier can be passed um, before we are confident about voter ID coming in place. And the third condition, which I haven't mentioned yet, but I, I should do since this question gives me the opportunity, is the practicality of it making sure that the provisions um, are not disproportionate for mm. electoral administrators actually trying to manage this mm. process on the day when people are coming to cast their, their vote and the challenges that, that they would face. Mm. So the tests that we, we, we are looking for is, um, which I think goes to the question of proportionality, is there a proposal that both deals with the question of fraud and risk of fraud, deals with the question of accessibility of their vote and can be achieved in a practical way, um, and part of that's what's on the face of the bill, but part of it's also in the secondary legislation and the way it's implemented on the ground. And there I think there's a lot of work for the Electoral Commission to do with local authorities, returning officers, electoral administrators, to look at how we can do this in as lower cost, most efficient and most effective way that will ensure the interests of voters mm. are safeguarded. All right, thank you. We've had a comment come in from Tom Brake saying um, that after voter ID in, in Northern Ireland kicked in and... Uh, 2003, according to the Cabinet Office, turnout appeared to recover by 2015. So um, we can all debate this online. Thank you for that. Um, that's um, just a couple on the quality of data coming out mm -hmm. of elections. Uh, someone, no name, saying, I completely agree that the data is vital for understanding where we are, what we, where we need to be. Electoral data is collected at a ward level, but published only at a local authority level. Why is this? when more granular ward-level data would be so va valuable? And another one saying, how can we improve the quality and use of electoral data? Oh, well, OK, that's, that is a very good question and one that you heard my CV is naturally of interest to me. I would very much like to, and I hope we can. Um, but at the moment, it is 
a practical question of what we collect the data from a local level, from local authorities. Local authorities are exceptionally hard-pressed um, and elections particularly really do challenge them. So we need to work with the grain of what is practical for them. But certainly I will be looking to think how can we do this in a way that is um, both practical for them and much more valuable for people who are interested in this in this data. And I agree with you, it would be really great to have it. Um, but I think any action we take needs to reflect the impact it would have on people on the ground in, in local councils up and down the country. All right, thank you. We've got just a couple more minutes. I'm going to squeeze in three. You may not feel it's your prime... Um, remit but three i mean people really want to know about your views on proportional representation i've got one from mary asking just that and would it imply significant changes to your organization's procedures one from councillor mike roberts saying uh pr one thing but should be on the in the context of fundamental reform including votes 16 bill of rights and written constitution that's actually a question it is i've read it um not not as a question. And Eric uh, saying, would PR effectively allay fears over election manipulation through boundary changes? And there are others. People are, would like to know what you have to say on the subject of PR. Well, I mean, these are fundamental constitutional questions. Um, it's another example where we are blessed with some real-life examples we can draw on to see, see how it works. <coughs> um, but I think I'm going to stick to the knitting of a statutory officer with a very precise statutory role um, and encourage this debate to be continued. I think we have not spent enough time thinking about the way the Constitution works and having a debate about what the implications are. There are pros and cons. There have been various discussions, various proposals over the years um, about whether um, constitutional reform of this kind should take place. Um, and we are where we are because the outcome has been to leave it where it is. And um, I think I would be bold indeed at this stage to kind of step into that with an opinion, mm. other than I think it is an important topic for us to continue to discuss um, because we get the politics that um, comes out of the system of politics that we choose to, choose to operate. Um, and uh, so it does matter, even if it's quite difficult to summon up um, widespread enthusiasm for it. Um, it is the way in which we do business. Um, and I think the views of all of us should be counted when we come to conclusions on that. Thank you very much for that. And with that, we are going to have to stop. Thank you for the really terrific questions that have come in, all kinds of things. Um, and um, there will, as I said, be um, a recording of this audio and video on our website very soon. So thank you for sending all those in. Thank you for watching. And John Pullinger, thank you very much indeed for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.